Since you enjoy this show, I thought I'd throw out there another podcast you might like. It's a show about the intersection of design, technology, and the creative process. It's the Design Better podcast. And in each episode, hosts Eli Woolery and Aaron Walter bring you conversations with inspiring creative thinkers like John Cleese and David Sedaris, people who bring design and technology together like Tony Fadal, co-inventor of the iPhone and the iPod. So far, some standout episodes for me have been when they talk to John Cleese of Monty Python about creativity. That is one of my favorite topics and one of my favorite people. Then also one of my favorite musicians, Tycho, about his creative process. And they talk with Seth Godin about how creativity is an act of generosity. I've always been fascinated by design, the creativity behind it, the implementation of it, both to improve our lives from a functionality and user interface standpoint, also from an artful bringing beauty into the world approach. So whether you're a design curious person like me or a design pro, Design Better is a great listen that inspires and informs. Subscribe to the Design Better podcast at designbetterpodcast.com or in your favorite podcast app like the one you're using right now. and welcome back to another episode of Beyond the To-Do List. I am your host, Eric Fisher. This is the show where I talk to the people behind the productivity. This week, I'm excited to share with you a conversation I had with Michael Reddington. He's an expert forensic interviewer and the president of Inquasive Inc. He's got a brand new book out called The Disciplined Listening Method, How a Certified Forensic Interviewer Unlocks Hidden Value in Every Conversation. And in this conversation, we talk about six ways that you can improve conversations with your employees before they even start. Honestly, this is all about being proactive and changing your mindset and perspective on communication. And if you don't know this, I was a communication major in college. One of the most fun things I ever did was take the course in communication theory. And this plays right into that. I love diving into the different ways that you can improve communication, that there's this signal and noise ratio, especially in a world where we're constantly connected. We've got pings and dings and notifications and news feeds and endless scrolling. This is truly a conversation and a book to help you listen better and instigate and catalyze better conversations. I loved this conversation with Michael Reddington. I know you will as well. So I'm going to get out of the way and just say, enjoy this conversation with Michael Reddington. Well, this week, it is my privilege to welcome to the show, Michael Reddington. Michael, welcome to Beyond the To-Do List. Thank you for having me, Eric. I really appreciate it. So we've got lots to talk about. We're going to talk about your new book, The Disciplined Listening Method, How a Certified Forensic Interviewer Unlocks Hidden Value in Every Conversation. But first, I want to dive into that subtitle, Certified Forensic Interviewer. One, what is that? Then follow that up with, what is Inquasive? You're the president of that, Inquasive Inc., I should say. Let's do that one-two punch right up front to get some context. 
I appreciate it. Thank you. So a certified forensic interviewer would be like a certified public accountant. It's not necessarily a job in and of itself. It's a designation of expertise within somebody's chosen profession. So for somebody to earn the certified forensic interviewer designation, they have to meet the career and education prerequisites, then pass a rigorous exam and maintain the moral, ethical, legal standards and continuing education credits after that. So it might be an over-summarization, but to add potentially a little bit of color to it, what we like to say is that as a certified forensic interviewer, you should be able to be blindfolded, thrown out of a helicopter, land in the middle of any interviewer interrogation, and conduct a morally, legally, and ethically successful conversation that's predicated on getting the truth. As far as Inquasive, uh, Inquasive is the company that I started post my full-time interview and interrogation career. And at Inquasive, we typically work with leaders and organizations who have had enough with dealing with missed opportunities and failed commitments to action. So they come to us to learn how to apply strategic and ethical observation and persuasion techniques across the spectrum of their business communications. Well done. I, I can tell you're not just a great listener, but a great speaker as well. <laughs> no, thank you very much. So obviously, as a certified forensic interviewer, I mean, how many years were you doing that again? Oh, I'd be close to 15. Yeah. So 15 years, that's a lot of experience, a lot of learning, a lot of mastering and perfecting. And so with that background in that and, and your understanding, again, of human behavior, you know, especially to use in terms of interrogation and do it the right way and and get what you need out of people. Obviously, that then brings a ton of insight into the disciplined listening method. And you're able to then deliver that and and coach people on that, teach people that how to do that for other scenarios that are, you know, more geared towards the business slash productivity realm, because listening is one major part of communication, I was a communications major in college, and the signal-to-noise ratio is and, – and all those good terms, I won't jump into a ton of those, but just I'm instantly just like, okay, he's speaking my language. I love this. Nice. I'm curious, though, what made you consider and slash pivot to Inquasive, you know, from being a forensic interviewer – over to Inquasive, and you know, I mean, basically, did you realize, okay, human behavior, we can unlock this and use this for a lot of other people's benefit? Yeah, that's a really a big component of it. I've heard you mention human behavior a couple of times, which is definitely important. But for me, it's also the universality of the human experience. And when I look back, not just at myself, but my former teammates, I worked with an amazing group of professional investigators and educators. And when I think back to the success that we consistently experienced in a wide range of cases and industries and applications, it really did come down to our ability to understand the universality of the human experience and listen for opportunities to create bonds or avenues to commitments that otherwise to use, use your word, we're locked away. You know, they were they were hidden from plain sight, listening between the lines, so to speak. And when I was full-time in that world of teaching, interview, and interrogation, towards probably the last several years, I started spending more and more time on the private sector side with the executives who were bringing me in to train their investigators. And we would have lunch or coffee or occasionally even a beer. And during those conversations, they would ask me questions about how to handle different scenarios that they were running into, either in negotiations or business development or leadership, coaching, conflict resolution. 
And it dawned on me that really at the lowest levels, they were solving for the same communication problems that I was. There were different titles for these conversations, and they were often happening in different settings under different contexts, but we were really solving for the same problems. So much like I had unleashed my inner geek to earn the certified forensic interviewer designation, I unleashed my inner geek again and really started diving into research from across the spectrum of business communication. Because A, I was honestly curious to see if I was right, and if so, how right was I? But if my hypothesis was correct, it led me to believe that there was probably a whole world of education that would apply to my interview and interrogation work that came from outside of that field. And in doing that research, I came to two realizations that really changed the direction for me. The first is that the best leaders and the best interrogators capitalize on the same two core skills, vision and influence. And the second one that really stopped me in my tracks is the cognitive process that interrogation suspects experience when they truthfully commit to saying, I did it is essentially identical to the cognitive processes that employees experience when they commit to saying, I'll do it, and customers experience when they commit to saying, I'll buy it. We tend to approach those conversations externally as if they're very different things, but between our ears, those mental gymnastics or roller coasters that we go through are essentially identical. So once I landed on those two, I said, okay, it's time for something new and different. It's time for me to take a different path. I'm still very much involved with the association and the designation, and I try to do as much as I can to support that world, but really was captivated by the challenge of bringing these skills, perspectives, and techniques into the business communication world because of the value that I've seen them add in so many of those conversations. Very cool. And that's exactly what you did with the book, The Disciplined Listening Method. And I mean, ultimately, the way that people are going to enter into this and from a productivity perspective is communication is essential to productivity. And by being able to be a better listener, not just listener, but to to improve conversations overall, back and forth, relationship-wise, with employees, up and down the chain, That's where this book comes in. So I'd love for us to dive in and start talking about what are some of the tips that are the lowest hanging fruit in terms of someone is picking up this book and they're like, okay, I'm not really sure what I'm going to get. What do you think that they can use as a first easy takeaway, almost like a first impression? Actually, first impressions are part of the book. So let's start there. Yeah, well, I'll geek out on that for a second and then dive in. That's a great question. You know, and I got one very specific idea to start with to tie into productivity. But when you talk about those first impressions, there were three research studies I came across and quote in the book. One's from Princeton that showed we're capable of judging somebody's trustworthiness, character, and intelligence within a hundred milliseconds after looking at their face. A similar study came out of the University of Glasgow that said we're capable of judging the same three traits within 500 milliseconds after hearing somebody say the word hello. And a third study came out of the University of Colorado that showed we're capable of filing somebody within one of our previously existing mental models, essentially labeling them within 150 milliseconds after looking at their face. And to tie that into productivity before I get back to the other point, if we think about it, As we engage in a lot of our, not just conversations, but activities, I spoke at an event several weeks ago and one of the other speakers was a former athlete and he was talking about how some of his teammates acted as the season was drawing to a close and they knew they weren't going to make the playoffs. Well, because the motivation wasn't there, a lot of times their effort dropped off. 
And that makes sense in a sports analogy, but it's absolutely true for communication as well. We will carry out or we will put forth the relevant amount of focus or attention that we believe is necessary based on the expectations that we carry into any conversation. So if I go into a conversation thinking this is going to be a waste of my time, I need to be somewhere else. I got to get out of here in 10 minutes. They're not going to listen to what I have to say anyway, so it doesn't matter. Any of these expectations or related expectations that we carry into the conversation are eroding the amount of focus and effort we're going to put in. Because now you look at 175 cognitive biases, but let's start with confirmation bias. We're literally observing for the first behavior or first word that we hear that allows us to say, yep, right, wasted my time, should have been somewhere else. They're not going to listen. And now we're not trying to unlock that hidden value. We're not trying to advance relationships or initiatives or find new avenues or establish new bonds. Yep, I'm right, moving on. So you hit a great point with first impression out of the gate. And in relation to that, for me, especially as it comes to productivity, the one that jumps right to mind is the concept that time is the enemy of empathy. And the example that I like to all, I guess I'll explain it and use an example. Essentially, our brains can't focus on two things at one time. So why we shouldn't be testing and driving. So if you and I are having a conversation and I'm thinking, well, I'm going to be somewhere else in five minutes. My mind's eye is now fully focused on those five minutes, even though I feel like I'm listening to you. And the closer I get to that five minute mark, the more stressed out I get. And the more stressed out I get, the less I'm listening to you and the more I'm concentrating on how stressed I feel and how I need to leave because only leaving is going to reduce my stress. We can triple down on that. But in that scenario, my feet are probably pointed towards the door, probably looking at my watch or picking up my keys or giving you some other indication that I really need to go, which is telling you, I don't care about you. I'm hoping it might get you to speed up, but it may actually have the opposite effect where you feel like you need to keep talking to maintain my attention. So when we prioritize time, I need to get this conversation over fast, or I need to be somewhere else fast. We literally lose the opportunity to connect with others, to fully listen, observe, and appreciate the totality of their message. And a recent and funny example happened a couple of months ago, maybe. Both my wife and I were working from home. I have a young son. I typically take him. We have a young son. Let me say that the right way for when she listens to this. It's ours. Uh, I typically take my son to preschool in the morning. She typically picks him up in the afternoon. She sends me a text message saying that she's on a call that's running long. Can I go get my son? Of course. So I look at my watch and realize I've got seven minutes to finish the email alone go downstairs, get changed, get water and snacks for my son and I, get in my truck, start the truck and connect my phone before my next call. Seven minutes should be no problem. Knock out the email, go downstairs, changed, getting the snacks and the water out of the pantry and out of the corner of my eye, here comes my wife. She put herself on mute, shut off her camera, comes over to me and starts giving me directions on how to start dinner should she still be on her call when I get home. Now, to give my wife all the credit in the world, she was trying to make sure we were taking care of our son and and keeping on his routine because he's always hungry when he comes home. And she knows I can't cook. So it's not like these were difficult directions for me (laughs) to follow. But literally, as my wife is talking to me, sitting a foot and a half away, she is saying words about dinner. And I'm hearing 252, 251, 250, 249, 248. And all I can think about is getting in the truck for my next call. So when she's done, she looks at me and says, got it. 
And I look at her and say, I'll figure it out. At which point the roles reversed. Now her face gets red. And I guarantee you what she is hearing is a minute 36, a minute 37, a minute 38, because now she's worried about how long she's been off her call and she has to tell me again. And it's a hopefully at least slightly comedic example, but it's one that every day that we bump into when we, you know, we talk about being fully present, it gets shared a lot, but oftentimes everybody in business is hurt. You have to invest money to make money. But even when we talk about productivity, oftentimes we have to invest time to save time. And it is the investment in these conversations and these communications, not just how we listen, but also to your point, how we speak, that the extra time we invest now saves us the time and makes us more productive down the road. Still searching for a great candidate for your company? Don't search, just match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch that busy work. Instead, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. I wish I had Indeed when I was in the hiring process in roles in the past because it is a slow, arduous headache of a process to find the right people or at least it used to be, join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to find and hire great talent fast. In fact, in the minute I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed according to Indeed data worldwide. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash to-do list. Just go to Indeed.com slash to-do list right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash to-do list. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's something that works so well, it basically feels like magic. For me, I'm thinking air conditioning, noise-canceling headphones, definitely. Meeting-free Fridays. What about selling with Shopify? Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your own shop stage to the first real store stage, you don't have to just sell your own stuff anymore. With Shopify Collective, you can curate products to sell from brands you love and give your customers more variety and your business more sales. Shopify is your no excuses business partner. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Shopify also helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms and sell more with less effort. Thanks to Shopify magic, your AI powered all-star sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash beyond. Again, go to shopify.com slash beyond now to grow your business. No matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash beyond. You're essentially addressing multitasking when it comes to communication and the lack of the possibility thereof. And the fact that we enter into these conversations not fully present creates a self-fulfilling prophecy that the meeting, the call, the whatever that we're entering into is not going to be beneficial because we've already decided it beforehand. Yes. Perfect. So that's very interesting. I mean, I love all those examples and I love this. This is is very, very cool. So how do we make sure that we enter into conversations with the proper expectations? Honestly, part of it is to suspend expectations. Okay. And this is something that I took from interview and interrogation as well. Early on in my career, I would think about the person I would have to interview and maybe think, oh, this will be easy. No problem. I got this. 
And then a minute and a half later, I feel like I'm locked in a cage with somebody thinking, how did I get in here? What what just happened? This wasn't supposed to be this way. And there were other times where I would walk in and feel like, oh, this is going to be a long conversation. And 15 minutes later, they're telling me everything that happened. And I'm sitting there going, whoa, I never saw this coming. So one of the things that we learned early on in, in that world was to suspend expectations and really focus on what does it take to establish the relationship necessary to obtain the truth. It's almost like going to see a movie. When we go to see a movie, we generally suspend reality so we can enjoy that experience. So that's part of it. The second part of it is to try to elevate our minds on. So let's say that I have to have a conversation with an employee who is having productivity issues, time management issues, their production or whatever their responsibilities are are faltering. If I go into that conversation thinking to myself, okay, I need to talk to Johnny. And I need to make sure Johnny understands the impact that his inability to manage his time is having on the entire organization and me and how important it is for him to change his behavior moving forward and what those consequences are if he doesn't. I'm literally setting very tactical short-term expectations for this conversation. And by the way, it's probably more about me at this point than it is about him. But now if I can step back before the conversation and think to myself, you know what? Let me think this through. Yeah, I probably do need Johnny to realize what an effect he's having on the whole team and me. But realistically speaking, if I can connect with him in a way that causes him to internalize the message and line it up with this self-image, then he can be a potential champion, somebody to help continue to promote this cause or combat this issue organizational-wide. He can be a teammate of sorts in that conversation, which will save me time and increase his value within the organization. And think about all the stress I'm not going to be experiencing moving forward, because if he gets this right, how many hours in my week do I get back and how many other things can I do? So now that I'm going into the conversation focused on turning Johnny into a champion in reducing my stress, I'm more likely to listen for opportunities to accomplish both of those goals, be more present in the conversation and limit those potentially harmful expectations going in. I'm sure there's plenty of people out there that talk consistently about we go where our mind's eye takes us. So if we elevate our mind's eye to those longer term strategic goals, we're more likely to remain present and put in more effort. If we stay focused on either the short term tactical goals or those limiting expectations, then we really have the opportunity to start falling into some of these mental traps that really degrade our listening. Interesting. Okay. So here's the other curious thing here. When it comes to improving and using the disciplined listening method in a context of a work-related scenario, the world of work has changed so much recently to where the tools we're using to communicate are now almost, I mean, I'll say it, 90% plus digital. And even when they're analog, it's still using digital for voice and things like that. So, (laughs) So we can't not use the tools. The tools have varying degrees, pros, cons, et cetera, of the amount of overcoming, again, the technology to get to the signal when it comes to communication. How do you factor that into this? Heavily. And one of the things that we like to say is in in any conversation or any situation to make sure we focus on what we do have and not what we don't have and to try to turn these opportunities or these limitations, excuse me, into opportunities. So if I know that I'm having largely video-based conversations with people, and in previous life, we would have seen each other in the office every day, but that's not the way it is anymore. 
then I need to make sure that A, I slow these conversations down. And B, at the beginning of every conversation, I'm taking time to acknowledge everybody at the individual level, which is really easy if it's one-on-one. It could be, hey, Eric, how are you? How's your family? How's your son? Did you make that fishing trip last weekend? How was your wife's birthday? I can make sure that we start the conversation at that personal level. So you feel like I really do care about you and I'm taking the time to connect with you personally before I get into the business-related topic for the reason for the meeting. Now, with a large team, obviously, it's going to be a little bit more difficult, but we do want to try to take the time to acknowledge everyone at the individual level and then make time for those one-on-one conversations. On the phone, it can still be the same where we're having that personal conversation first. And honestly, for me, even in emails, more often than not, I try to make sure there's at least one sentence in the beginning that is, hey, how are you? Ask them a specific question about something I know might be going on in their life. So it's not just that quick, bam, important business question or statement. What's your response? (laughs) Because then that's what people come to believe we only value them for. Now, when it comes to the actual communication, and again, video is, is more and more and more prevalent at this point. But when we're talking with people via the video communication, we want to be cognizant of ourselves, obviously. So I don't want to be right on top of the camera. Literally, if I've got the camera set up so it looks like I'm looking down into the camera, people could feel like I'm looking down on them. I want to be as careful as I reasonably can be with how I come off, how close I stand, how I'm looking. So it doesn't create the wrong vibe, if you will, for the conversation. But when it comes to the evaluation, again, I want to focus on what I do have, not what I don't have. So honestly, for most video conversations, I'm going to ignore or at least be hesitant to make a firm evaluation of somebody's nonverbal communication because I have no idea what's going on around the home. I don't know who else is in their room, if their dog just jumped on the couch, if there's flashing lights or sirens going by the window. They're ignoring me and texting somebody else on the phone. They have the TV on in front of them. I don't know why their nonverbal behavior is changing. So I really have to discount that. But because I'm discounting that, now I can pay much closer attention to their specific word choice, variations in their pauses, tone of voice, how fast or slow they talk. So now I can really hone in on what they're saying, how they're saying, and the likely emotional connotations to what they're saying. And I can really start to glean more intelligence that way. So I guess to to summarize on both ends, number one, I want to make sure that I'm making an intentional effort to slow down the conversation and connect with them at a personal level to whatever degree it's available. And then on the evaluation end, I really want to focus on what I do have, not what I don't have to suss out the available intelligence. Very good. And so that's a really great way to set up our entering into the communication process when it comes to all of this remote work. And again, it's going to be a hybrid model for a long time now. I think, you know, remote already existed. What's funny is this 2020, at that point, I had already worked remote for six plus years. And before that point, before being fully remote, I was, you know, 30% remote and, you know, 70%, I'm doing the math here in my head, (laughs) uh, 70%, you know, in an office and, you know, some varying degree of percentage when it comes to the mix between those two is going to likely be what the thing is moving forward. We're still going to meet in person. We're still going to have meeting rooms and conferences and events and interactions in all those different ways, but it's going to be flexible and it it behooves us to 
be ahead and train ourselves so that we can truly communicate when we're wanting to either impart wisdom or learn from who we're talking to, again, listening better. Agree. And maybe one additional danger for people to consider is when we're choosing the modality for our conversations, it's important not to choose them just for convenience, but choose them for value. And I know working from home, the large part of that is convenience for people and they do value that convenience. But if we're in a hybrid model and I know I'm going to have people in the office two days a week or one week a month or every other Friday or whatever it is, depending on the conversation, not just the topic I need to talk about, but the value of the interaction and the goals that this conversation could help us achieve. Maybe it's better for me to wait and have that conversation in person than it is to do it virtually or just shoot it out over an email. And all too often, especially in conversations that involve any type of stress or discomfort to deliver and or receive messages as part of that, it can be really easy to default to the convenience instead of focusing on the real value we can generate. So I guess that would just be one more you know, potential caveat or, or consideration for people in that hybrid model. You know, what are the goals we're looking to attain from this conversation? And within the available modalities that we have, what do we think is the best way to execute? Interesting. Yeah. So my thought is, is it really seems like there's a certain amount of, as you're walking into a conversation, diffusing the expectations, considering the person, considering and or then letting go of their potential hangups, what may be keeping them from giving you their full attention and all of that, but how much pre-work, how much prep for the conversation or prep for the communication ahead of time do we do and and how much of that becomes just regular muscle memory is not necessarily, it's not muscle memory, it's nervous system memory, as I've been corrected on <laughs> recently. How much of that plays into this? That's a, a great question. There's actually several points to touch on in there. When we talk about diffusing our own expectations going in, when I think about our counterparts, your audiences, the people we're going to be talking with, I think about, and this is a phrase that I'm stealing from a woman named Judy Burgoon, who did a lot of the research, I think about it as violating their expectation. And the word violate, we often tend to mean bad things, but literally, if you expected me to wear a blue shirt today and I'm wearing a red shirt, I violated your expectation. And that is entirely benign. We thought one thing would happen, something else happened. So as leaders within our organizations at any level, it's important to realize that the people who work for us or around us might look at our titles, I shouldn't say might, likely look at our titles and see them as motivation to be less honest with us instead of more honest with us. Because as much as we might see ourselves as agents of empowerment, people around us can often see us as agents of potential consequences, whether we act that way or not. They could have been operationally conditioned throughout their employment journey. So going into conversations, and especially not when I was in interrogations, I really went out of my way to try to be as nice as possible and as personable as possible at the beginning of every conversation. Because I literally wanted them thinking, wait a minute, this is not what I expected. When they think this is not what I expected, they're now paying more attention to me. I have a higher level of their focus. I can use that to my advantage. To get to the second half, and when we talk about preparation, yes, anything that becomes routine, the more we do it, the more we repeat an action or a thought process, the more it just becomes natural. And the more we end up going through it without even realizing it or step-by-stepping it, we, we just sort of evolve through it. How much effort we put in should be commensurate with the value we believe we're going to get from the conversation. 
or maybe not even the value we think we're going to get, the potential value that could be out there, because we might not think we're going to get it, but the potential for it certainly could exist. So for me, there are four strategic preparation questions that I like to ask myself to help get my game plan together prior to any potential high value conversation. We often have been taught, conditioned, shown examples to ask ourselves, why should Eric do what I want him to do? Prior to the conversation, just think it through. Okay, if I was Eric, why should I want to do this? The problem with that is I'm not really focusing on your perspective. I'm transposing mine. And at the same time, I'm activating my biases, assumptions, and expectations, likely overvaluing my strengths or what I believe in. And I'm really clouding what you really may be motivated by or may be fearful of. So for me, the first question is the opposite. I ask myself, why shouldn't Eric say this? Or why shouldn't Eric do this? Or why shouldn't Eric commit to what I need him to commit to? And this isn't about being negative or expecting failure. It's about trying to heighten my awareness, trying to increase my empathy, and trying to truly put myself as close to your shoes as I can, not by thinking about the good reasons, why should you, but the obstacles that might exist here. Why shouldn't you? Your life, your perspective, your history, your options, why shouldn't you want to do this? And because I am a bit of a caveman, I will use an actual pen and an actual piece of paper, and I will write these things down. Once I have that answer, then I'll ask myself the sister question, which is why hasn't Eric done this already? And in fairness, there's two answers to that question. One could be, he didn't know it was an option. Can't fault you for that. If you knew it was an option and hadn't done it already, it almost certainly falls into the category of you don't perceive the value. If you saw the value, you would have changed your behavior. So now I need to start unpacking where is the disconnect? Why don't I think you see the value? Once I believe I have those two questions answered, I flip the coin and I look at my answers to those two questions and I ask myself, with these answers in mind, what do I think Eric needs to experience before he chooses to do what I need him to? It's not about what do I need to say. It's about what do you need to experience? And creating that communication experience really is disciplined listeners It's our job to take responsibility for how our counterparts experience our communications. So it could be the time, date, location, number of conversations, who else is involved? What do I say? The order that I say it in, where are my face-saving mechanisms? How do I help you protect your self-image? What are the most impactful questions I can ask? Because question fatigue is real. I don't want to hammer you with questions. I'd like to ask one or maybe two and, and use that to get to where I need to be. So for me, it's why shouldn't... Eric say what I need him to? Why hasn't he already said it? What does he need to experience before he chooses to say it? And then the fourth question is just like a checkpoint for me. What is my goal? And how will everything I say and do help me achieve that goal? And once I go through those four questions, I should have a really good framework for approaching our interaction. I hear other people's brains churning on those questions and that prep work, and they're thinking, wow, that's a lot of homework or a lot of pre-work to do for a conversation. Is it worth it? And, and the thing is, is much like with productivity, the time invested in preparing slash setting up something that then will last a long time or have greater results because of it is not wasted time. In other words, if you were to enter into a conversation and you don't do any of the things you just said, you could still get some and maybe even all potentially of what you're looking to get out from that conversation. However, 
without doing the work, you're almost guaranteed you can't raise the threshold of potential for that conversation. And the other thing is, is that when it comes to setting things up, doing that pre-work, all that kind of stuff, the more you do it, the faster it can be to process through it ahead of time. It's a learned skill that like with any other skill, the better you get at it, the faster often is the case you can get at it so that it doesn't feel like extra work. It just feels like you're being thoughtful, intentional. You're actually stating a goal for the conversation other than just, hey, let's meet and talk about this. Yes. Yeah, I agree entirely. The process does take less and less time. It becomes our default approach, not only to become our default approach to conversations, but it literally changes how we problem solve in our lives. And if we think about it, like it's true in life, it's true in conversation, speed kills. So if I think back to my interrogation career, my former team, like several of my former teams, but specifically my most recent former team, we audio video recorded all of our interviews and interrogations. And we would show them in clips of them anyway, in lots of the training courses that we taught. And it wouldn't be uncommon for somebody to come up to me on lunch or raise their hand and say, well, that looked really easy. Well, it looks really easy to you, but you weren't in the four game planning meetings that we had. (laughs) It was all of the work that we put in prior in the techniques that we fine tune and we trust and we repeat, oh, it made that conversation look easy. Same thing with professional athletes. You know, they make it look super smooth on TV, but we don't see them working 342 days a year, eight hours a day, cloning their craft. So when we think about the potential value to get from their conversations, you hit the nail on the head and maybe I'll make one too many interrogation analogies here. When we would talk to people in our seminars or if we were going in to kind of wrap up an investigation that another group had started and somebody says, yeah, well, I got that guy to confess in 10 minutes. Well, good for you. Congratulations. What didn't he tell you? Because there's no way in 10 minutes you built the rapport necessary, the credibility necessary in order to encourage that person to give you maximum detail for what they were a part of, who else was involved and how we can go find more evidence. It just didn't happen. So we went in with the expectation of learning one thing and in 10 minutes managed to trip and fall and land on it. And now we feel really good because we got out of that room in 10 minutes. Well, congratulations for getting you out of there in 10 minutes. Use both hands, tap yourself on the back. But now the rest of the investigators have to go in and talk to other people to try to dig up the information that might have been available in that conversation. I mean, for those listeners who are in a design organization or they come from a manufacturing background, time is the enemy of quality, just like it's the enemy of empathy. When we prioritize time over quality, quality suffers. And if we look at preparing for finishing a conversation within a certain amount of minutes, there's a real, real, real likelihood that we're sacrificing value for time. I couldn't help but think of if you're being sent to the store, let's use the analogy here. If you're being sent to your store by your wife and she rattles off a bunch of things and you're not really listening and you go and you're like, it only took me 10 minutes to get in and out. And get the stuff and you get home and like the list is three fourths or even half checked off. You didn't fully listen. You didn't really properly prepare and really capture the list and so forth. That's great that you did it in 10 minutes. You didn't complete the task. You didn't get everything you were supposed to get. And now somebody else has to go back. Yes. And to see you in a race, there could be my wife could be giving me the list of things that she needs. And if I'm really listening, I can figure out, oh. She and Gabriel are going to bake together this afternoon. And it sounds like she forgot some ingredients. 
So I could actually be picking up on something that's missing from the list because I'm figuring out what she needs these things for. So I think it's a great example. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to think, you know, obviously, you know, thinking outside the box, but we're also thinking in terms of productivity and, you know, this, this is applicable to a whole life scenario, but drilling down back into the workplace again, I wonder, is there a way, a simple way? I mean, everybody should go grab the book and start to hone their skills in this direction. But even if not, what is some way that somebody can start to enter in? What's a quick win? What is a an example of something, a simple first step somebody can do to start to integrate this into their skill set? Let the conversation come to you. Fight the temptation to cut people off. Fight the temptation to show them that you already know. Fight the temptation to one-up somebody. You know, we don't want to suffer death by last word. Let them have the win. It doesn't matter. But be patient and let the conversation come to you. Listening equals learning. And if we're not learning, we're not listening. So really working hard to limit our internal monologue. Don't worry so much about how we're feeling or what we want to say next. And really let the other person, however long as possible, I understand there's outliers to everything, but for the vast majority of time, let them finish what they have to say. Because there's going to be layers for us to peel back, to listen for not just what they're telling us, but what aren't they telling us? What are they really feeling? What are the goals they're really trying to get out or fears they're really looking to avoid? And if we're fully engaged and can gather all of that the first time without cutting them off and derailing the conversation, we will be more productive and save more time in the long run. That's a great place to start. Man, I mean, I I am a geek when it comes to this again, because being a communications major, this fell right into my sweet spot when it came to communication as well as productivity. I know there's probably other people that even if they just have one side or the other of that, this is going to resonate with them. I'd love to direct people to where they can find out more about the book, grab a sample chapter and uh, dive in and, and connect with you as well. Where can people do that? I appreciate you asking. First, to learn more about the book, they can go to disciplinedlistening.com. There is a chapter there. There's excerpts from the book. There's plenty to learn. Of course, I appreciate you saying it. Links to purchase there as well. The book is available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. If they're looking to learn more about the book, disciplinedlistening.com. If they're looking to learn more about me, it's michaelreddington.com. If they're looking to learn more about Inquasive and the programs and advisory services we offer, it's Inquasive, I-N-Q-U-A-S. Ive.com. And while I'm realizing I need to increase my social media footprint right now, if they'd love to connect with me, there's contact forms on all of those websites, but the other place to do so would be on LinkedIn at Michael Reddington CFI. And I would certainly love to connect and answer any questions that your listeners may have. Perfect. Michael, I'll link up to all of those in the show notes for this episode. And thank you so much for sharing this wisdom and this learning that you've learned and passing it on to us. I really think this is going to make a huge difference for people. Thank you so much. Appreciate you having me. Thank you. I really enjoyed the conversation. Well, that's another podcast crossed off your listening to-do list. I really hope that you enjoyed listening in on this conversation with Michael Reddington. I really think that this book is a huge potential for you to unlock communicating better, whether that's with your boss or as a boss. I know this is something that is super helpful. Make sure to click through on the show notes to grab that book. It is a very good book. I highly recommend it. I hope that you take away more than just grabbing the book from this conversation. I hope that this sparked your interest in a way to really improve your communication overall. 
And maybe you're thinking of somebody right now that needs to improve their communication as well. Well, you can help them with that by sharing this episode. Do me the favor of sharing this episode with that person. Let them know about this podcast episode by either hitting the share button on your podcast player app of choice or head on over to the show notes at beyondthetodolist.com. Thank you for sharing. Thank you again for listening. And I will see you next episode. Hey, thanks for listening to the end. If you're looking for a show to start helping you apply these productivity lessons on your business, check out Millionaire University. It's real lessons from real entrepreneurs teaching you what you need to know to improve your business or start one if you've been putting it off. It covers all aspects of business from starting marketing, growing, managing, and everything in between, wearing all the hats. And as an added bonus, I am conducting a number of those conversations, those interviews, so you'll fit right in. Again, that's Millionaire University. Just search for it in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this podcast.